Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. We're in Luke chapter 9 this morning. Picking up on the verse we left off on, just rolling right through. This is uh, Jesus has been showing the disciples how to live, the way they should go. They have all got good soil. There's a seed that's there. The Word of God's taking root. But they're not big, huge trees yet. They're just still little sprouts. And so he's got some guidance and teaching and discipleship. And it begs the question, if I'm going to live for Jesus, how do I deal with other people in my life? And what we have are three different examples today of how do we deal with others? People that aren't trying to follow Christ or people that are doing it different. We have people that accept Christ, but they want us to do it a little bit their way. And then we have others that are accepting Christ in another ministry somewhere. And then we have rejectors, people that outright don't want to hear about Jesus. How do we deal with all three groups? And we get a Jesus example of each of these three. And this is powerful stuff. And here's the other thing. Almost all of us as believers, depending on our church traditions and where we come from, we have preconceived ideas on how to deal with other people around our faith. And what I'd ask you to do today is just wipe that slate clean and let the example of Jesus just land where it should on you. And that might mean that there's some ideas we got to talk about afterwards. This might, the, today's teaching might mess you up more than it helps answer your questions, if, if I can say that. Um, but it starts off with this idea of reputation in the kingdom of God. So if we're dealing with each other as a body, how do we determine who's the bestest? And that's a question that comes up in the flesh, but it's dealing with people within the body. How do we determine who's the greatest? Verse 46, then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be the greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their hearts, took a little child and set it by him. And he said to them, whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is the least among you will among you all will be great. So here's the context. Jesus has done his solo ministry, chapters one through four. He has showed, he has called the disciples and showed them the way, chapters five and six. He has, we have seen reactions that people have to Jesus and the word of Jesus, chapters seven and eight. And then in chapter nine, the disciples go out, preach, heal, come back. They're doing everything Jesus modeled for them in chapters five through eight. So they get a chance to practice what they've learned. Then we get to verse 2. There's the multitudes, um, one before the transformation, and then last week we covered a multitude after the transformation. And the difference was in the disciples. One was just a miracle, and the other, he comes back to a multitude that's in dispute and arguments and bickering and this endless thing that we humans do where we pick on each other all the time, and we're never good enough. So they're seeing only the earthly, they're not seeing the heavenly, and then the transfiguration happens, and he shows them that there is a glorified existence that we are shooting for. And they get this glimpse of heaven, Jesus, Elijah, Moses, just fellowshipping and talking in a glorified state. They come back down the hill, probably a mountaintop experience, but they come down from the mountain, and in the valley, the multitude is bickering with one another. And I think Peter, James, and John start to see things a little bit like Jesus sees it. We're so concerned with our arguments, we lose track of glory. And, we, and in that, we miss everything. 
So we love to do this. So they come back down to arguments, the scribes and the disciples. These are people that have accepted Jesus's word. This is the church people on the early state. They're disputing about this demon that was torturing somebody about who has power and who doesn't. Jesus comes in and bam, knocks the demon out. Clearly Jesus has the most power and all they can think of, well, like who's the greatest other than Jesus? Like Jesus is number one, but who's number two? Is it Peter? Is it James? Is it John? It can't be Nathaniel, right? So Jesus turns to them and he reminds them of the cross. Look, the goal here isn't to be great. The goal here is to go all the way to the end and to go to our dying day following Jesus. Don't think the crowd is the goal. The goal is the cross. And Jesus has to just wrestle this out of the human mind because it's that last stone he has to get out for the disciples to get it. It's not about arguing with other people. It's about pursuing a cross. And the only way to really understand that is when the Holy Spirit kind of gives you a direction. And you point yourself to the cross and the Holy Spirit shows you where it is. So the flesh loves numbers. that We get excited when crowds show up. It's inevitable that we think that way. Large numbers must mean that we're being blessed by God. And Jesus' teaching in this chapter is the exact opposite. It has nothing to do with the crowd. It has to do with him going to a cross. So argument number one, after the mountain, Jesus is our power and it brings problems to Jesus. Now we get argument number two, after the mountain, verse 46, then a dispute. Jesus draws lines between heaven and earth. The disputes are earthly. They're flesh thinking. They're worldly thinking. Disciples are competing for prominence, which is icky, just after they got done trying to build tents for Moses up on the hill. So who's going to be greatest is a, obviously a ranking or who's in charge, who gets the final say. And they're trying to determine what that looks like. Is it who saves the most people? Is it who disciples the most people? Is it who invites the most people? Is it the person who serves the most? Is it the person who cast out the biggest, nastiest demon? Is it the person that can arm twist? Is it the person who can walk on water? Right? Who gets to be the top and in charge of this church that we're setting up? And in verse 47, Jesus perceiving the thoughts of their heart. This isn't the first time. The last time he perceived the thoughts of the heart were with the scribes and Pharisees. And he perceived that there, they were, there was a bitterness there. This time he's reading people and that there's, there's still this idea that to be like Jesus, we have to read the heart before we can deal with disputes. So anytime you have people arguing or bickering, what's the heart of the arguing or bickering? Why are they arguing or bickering? And Jesus perceives their heart. He understands what it is. I don't know that the perceiving the thoughts of the heart is the claim of a miracle. I think that we can often read people's intention and hearts by how they talk, the tone with which way they talk, the body language they have when they're doing it. So good communication skills here to kind of erase the need for a full-on miracle. So Jesus took a little child and set it by him. So this is an answer to the question, who's the greatest? Whoever's feet those are, come on down, because you're distracting me. There we go. Hi, Tim. So Jesus flips this into an argument for children's ministry, right? So this is probably the number one argument for children's ministry. If you want to be the top, and if you want to be in charge, if you want to be the boss, be somebody in the life of a child, which means lowering yourself at, to begin. Like most child psychology is that you get down to their level so that you can talk to them eye to eye. And God promises here a unique blessing and a connection to anyone who takes in a child. So to take a little child in the first century, 
the role of women was to raise the child to age 13. It was very rare that men had much to do with child rearing out in, in a worldly sense, especially in Roman culture. Wealthy women saw the care of a child as so lowly that wealthy women, even middle-class women of Jewish and Roman heritage in this era, they would hire a servant to do the child care because the child was pretty worthless until they were 13, and that was just the attitude of this culture. So Jesus, by grabbing the child and doing it himself, first of all, crosses all sorts of cultural boundaries. So I, it always bothers me when people take the Bible and say, well, that's culturally contextual. That's an odd argument given that Jesus broke on almost every cultural rule they had around religious practice. Like he set his own culture. That's the whole point of why we follow him. So they're tallying 5,000 people in the multitude. And when they tally the multitude, you know, he fed 5,000. They don't even count children. And that's just part of how this era works. Jesus' point here is that he's leveling what greatness is. Greatness is, service is great, but it's the opposite of a crowd. Instead of 5,000 people, he takes one child. He doesn't bring many children in this situation. He brings one child. He took a little child and set it by him, a single kid. And what he's trying to teach about greatness is something that can land on our hearts too. It doesn't matter how great you think you are, if you don't have influence in the life of any person around you, if you don't love or receive anyone, you're all about you all the time, you don't have any standing whatsoever in the kingdom. You're still loved by God. He still has a plan for your life. But that plan includes discipling people. And so all these disciples are arguing with each other, but none of them have taken anyone in. None of them have said, I, I welcome you into my life. Come be a part of it. And taking in a kid means taking on the boogers, taking on where they wipe their boogers, their cold, their dirt, their nastiness. They don't bathe all the time unless you make them. Right? That, it, you know, kids have ratty little hairdos. That, like, there, a lot of people are like, I hate kids because everything in our adult disposition is, yeah, kids are kind of gross at the end of the day. But Jesus just takes one in, touches them, brings them close. And his point is that service is great. That's what greatness is. So this becomes more relevant than gathering a crowd. The disciples are all excited about the crowd. They're arguing about who casts out demons. And Jesus teaches something very counterintuitive. Bless a kid. Bless one human being. And he takes the lowest, most ignored class of human being, which is a child in this era, and he brings them close. If Jesus teaches something, I want to know it. I want to hear what Jesus says. I want it to bake in. I want it to sink in. Or earlier in the chapter, let this word sink deep into your ears. Get all the way to your brain and even further to your heart. The idea of reception becomes far more powerful than anything else. Who's, if I want to be great in God's eyes, I have to receive people. I don't want to receive people. I don't want to host. It costs me time. It costs me money. People are annoying. And they have foibles and quirks that I don't like. And yet Jesus tells us to just let that stuff go. Ignore it. So there's three elements here. <laughs> well, you could say the three elements are gather a crowd, feed them miraculous food, and then get super amped and pat yourself on the back. But don't write those down. That's the opposite of what, like, that's what the disciples are thinking. These are, he goes quite the opposite direction. 
first he sets him by him. Stage one, be next to or get come alongside or get close to somebody. In the Greek, it's cause something to stand or to place something, or even in the root word of that set is to make firm or establish something next to Jesus. He takes a child and he makes that child established next to him. And if we can do that with anybody, not convince them, not persuade them, not get them to say a magic prayer, if we can get somebody to set themselves firmly in the path of Jesus Christ, directed to Jesus Christ, that's step one. Gathering people to Christ and calling them to come close, to visit, to locate themselves in a position closer to Jesus. That's making you great in God's eyes. And I don't know about you, but I want to be great in God's eyes. I want to, do, I want to be a good and faithful servant. So I want to invite people to come closer to Jesus. Then two, whoever receives. So first, we, st we set someone. Second, we receive someone. The idea of reception, I think we've lost in the modern church. Reception is to take someone by the hand or take them up or even to carry them. And in the Greek, the idea of reception is literally to carry a kid or take up a kid. Allow them to be part of things. Welcome them in. Give them a chance to teach. Give them a chance to help you with children's ministry. Give them a chance to host. Give them a chance to do things where they can draw themselves closer to Jesus. Receive them. Welcome them. When we meet a new believer, I'm going to say, humbly, when I was first a believer, I was wearing black ACDC shirts. I, I had done my own haircuts. And I wore ripped jeans to church on my first Sunday when I was a kid, when I was a teenager. I was rude. I was thoughtless. I took thirds at the dinner table, not caring if anyone else got food because I was a hungry little teenager. And you know what? The people at that little Baptist church in Medelia, Minnesota, they received me. They welcomed me. And I think they thought, this is one weird kid showing up at church without his parents. Who is this kid? Right? And I would walk in and I, I was thoughtless. I was rude. I came for the wrong reasons. All of it. I was, I was a mess. And when new believers come into the church, they are not churched up yet. And when we receive them, we have to understand that. They're not there yet. All we're looking for with people coming in is, do they have a, a good soil for the Word of God to grow in their heart, or don't they? And if they do, they're just children of God. And maybe they're a little less along their journey than we are, but they're figuring it out. If they're, or they're coming in with a heart where they're looking for something, and that's what I would call a wolf. They're not coming to hear the Word of God. They're coming to get something. And they're going to go around the flock until they get what they're going to get. And so you got people coming in and they're either they're hungering for the word of God or they're searching for, the, for something selfish. And between those two things, God's like, we got to welcome them, receive them and bring them in. So we give them an ear, we embrace them, we make them family, even if that means we get betrayed, hurt, or, or, or it, at some level that they do damage. Okay, I gave my life to the Lord. I'm okay if the Lord wants to bring people in that I receive and that somehow gets feelings hurt. So we take people by the hand, we accept them, we receive them, we make them a friend. Even a little child, a human that's easily overlooked, uncounted, without capacity, without position, they don't have gifts and talents to bring, they bring nothing to our fellowship other than boogers. And those are the people we welcome, right? Hey, welcome in. Number three, so first we set them closer to Jesus. Two, we receive them into our family. And three, we do it in my name or in Jesus' name. This is key. 
Because you can be good hosts and have people over to your house and welcome them to your house and not do it in the name of Jesus, right? The world does hospitality too. So if you do all of these things and you receive people and you're nice to people and you're kind to people and you just do it in your name, what good is that? What benefit is that? When people receive your blessing, I think what made it so impactful for me were these people that received me as a, a scrappy teenager, but they did it in the name of Jesus. So I knew why they were receiving me. They weren't receiving me because I was easy to like. They received me because I was in the name of Jesus, their job was to receive me. And what a burden that can be sometimes. Being nice to people is really, really good. But receiving people in the name of Jesus is greatness. And it, it frankly, it puts a, an awkward thing on you because they'll be like, oh, thanks for having me over. You know what? I did it in the name of Jesus. Like you have to say something that's a little outside normal flesh talk. So it makes you a little uncomfortable. But whoever receives me, Jesus, and whoever receives me, Jesus, receives him who sent me. You're receiving God himself when you receive his children. And the people that the Holy Spirit has drawn into fellowship with you, if the Holy Spirit's brought them to you and you don't receive them in the name of Jesus Christ, then you're not very great for God because you're not receiving the work that God has done. This is why it's important you tune in when you're filling your gas at the gas station. Who's next to you? Who's in line at the DMV next to you? Like, who has God put in your path? So when we come together as a church, this is vertical. We're here to honor God, worship God, give God his due. When we leave here Monday through Saturday, that's horizontal. We're out fishing all the time, everywhere, all in. That's what we do. So to do it in the name of Jesus is, is a piece of greatness. Remember, this is an answer to the question, who's greatest in the kingdom of God? Do children's ministry. That means the most important person in this church is Mandy. I'm going to name her because she volunteers. She's faithfully there. She's prepared and ready to set those kids closer to Jesus in the name of Jesus and welcome them and take them by the hand and be a friend. And over the years, that's a long game for those kids. We want those kids to know one other adult besides their parents that loves them in the name of Jesus. Parents have to love their kids. It's almost a rule. It's, it's ugly when they don't. But a an adult at a church has no reason to love that kid other than Jesus. And those kids will be ugly and, and tough, but Mandy's humble. She wouldn't like the fact that I just said she's the greatest, but receive it. Those that show reception to people that aren't easy to receive are people that God likes. If you want to know where you stand, favor in the body of Christ is faithfulness and love. And that's the lesson Jesus teaches. It's not numbers. It's not who can cast out the biggest demon. It's not who can lift the biggest weight, you know, feats of strength. I'm just saying. Pause a moment and let that sink down into your ears. How is important is reception in your life? How important is it to you to show kindness to someone that you wouldn't normally show kindness to? If we pursue the glory of the mountaintop, we start by receiving one person. Simple. I love how Jesus makes it simple. It's just that we make it complex. It seems that small to the world is what is great in heaven, but it's everything. One soul makes all of heaven celebrate when they give their lives or turn their lives to Jesus. Not a crowd, not a healing, not casting out, just bringing a child into a loving position next to Jesus in the name of Jesus. I would say like we could just meditate on that. Write it down. Write it on your hand with ink and think about it all week. Who am I receiving into my life? 
So can we do them more than just hear about it, but then act accordingly? And that love is the way. And this is what Jesus teaches them. It's so simple, even a, a hippie can figure this out. An, a a drug-addled hippie can figure this out. A child can figure this out. But we make it complex. Love is the way. 1 Corinthians 13, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, I speak two languages, but I don't have love. I've become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal, and though I have the gift of prophecy, and I understand all mysteries and knowledge, and I'm a super good Bible teacher, if I don't have faith so that I can, I, I might have faith that I can remove mountains, but if I don't have love, I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, I'm super generous, I give stuff away. Though I give my body to be burned as a martyr, but if I don't have love, it profits me nothing. Paul understood what Jesus is teaching here. It's all about love. Everything else is icing on the cake. Who are you receiving into your life? I'm not saying who did you say hi to on a Sunday morning. I'm saying who are you receiving into your life? And who are you bringing into your life as a brother or sister in Christ? I never think that prophecy, learning, faith, charity, or martyrdom are bad things. I don't think that's Paul's point here. Those are all good things. That's his point. There's a difference between good things and great and great has to do everything with love, even unto the least of these. So we minister to those who come humbly and willingly to be close to Jesus. We receive those people in the name of Jesus. That's what I'd call reception. Instead of seeking greatness by power, number, influence, blah, 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 we seek one person, we invest in their life, and we can do everything we can do to pray about it. And if you're answering honestly right now and you're like, I don't know if I got one person that I'm really bringing into my family. Pray about that. Lord, give me an opportunity. Open a door. Help me to humble my heart and learn about it. We can desire what God wants of us and we can even pray for the things that God wants us to be praying for. And when he shows his disciples this, after showing them glory on the mountaintop, yeah, heaven's the goal, but this is what he wants us working on. How do we deal with those? So that's one thing. That's how we deal with people in our ministry that come into our church, into our family. That's how we deal with that first group. Here's the second group. How do we deal with people that claim that they're following Jesus, but they're not with our ministry? There's some other ministry, some other group of people, and they're asking for um, how do we deal with those points? So note in verse 49 that John answers. He answers the little kid lesson with another question. Okay, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, but we forbade him because he does not follow with us. And Jesus said to him, Don't forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. You guys have heard this story a million times. How do we deal with people doing other ministries? Let them do it. It's not our business to worry about it. I'm not here to challenge those sorts of things. So John answers receiving children with this idea of, but Jesus, there's more important things than kids. I can, like, I know this feeling when I search my own heart. Somebody comes up and says, Sean, you just got to love on the little children. And I'm like, yeah, but there's people out doing false ministry. Shouldn't I be arguing and quibbling and stopping false teachers? And shouldn't I be, there's more important things than kids, right? Don't take that out. Don't clip that out of context and make that your ringtone. <laughs> Man, there's false teaching, there's ministry, there's people twisting the gospel out there. If I can't be great, maybe I can stop other people from getting greater than they should be, right? It's such a deception. Just like watch YouTube for five minutes. 
The carnal thinking of greatness if we is either increasing numbers and powers for our ministry or decreasing number and power for other people's ministry. Well, they're doing this stuff, and I don't know about what they're doing. So Jesus ultimately has the power here, verse 41. The carnal thinking of greatness is position. Jesus receives a child and changes that. The carnal thinking of greatness in decreasing competition or policing other people, Jesus' answer is no. Don't do that. Let it sink in. Whatever ministry we do should bring people in to Jesus. Verse 41. Whatever ministry we do should assume a humble relationship as, and building as a central part of what we do. Verse 48. Whatever ministry we do should not worry about other ministries. Verse 50. Well, this other ministry is doing this, this, and that. And they're very successful. You should take a ministry class from them so we can build on the church model that they've used. No. Jesus' answer is no. Do what you're called to do. He doesn't, he does not follow with us is the idea. The idea is they're worried about somebody who's not on the disciples team, Jesus, but someone else who's been blessed by Jesus. Do you remember when Jesus healed the demoniac across the Galilee and he told the demon guy when he was healed, he said, go back to your town and tell everybody about me. Mm -hmm. And then they got in a boat and they left. That means that guy across the lake started a ministry that Jesus trusted him with, with no further guidance than healing alone. So all over, as Jesus has traveled this region, he has planted seeds of ministry everywhere he's gone. And people are just telling people about Jesus, bringing them close in the name of Jesus, receiving them. So here's somebody casting out a demon. First of all, we don't cast out demons. God does through us. Like, we got to get that. It's not our power that casts out a demon. We don't do it by force of will or fancy rituals or finely brewed holy water. None of that matters. It's God that casts out a demon. We do it in Jesus' name. So if the demon's actually getting casted out, it means God's supporting that ministry. But I don't like how they cast the demon out. I, I have problems with what I see, and it's, okay, do not forbid him. With some conditions, there are things that within our ministry we challenge apostasy and we challenge heresy. There is doctrine that we stick to, right? And we're not going to fart around with that. No offense, but like we're not going to mess with that stuff. There's things that are biblical and things that aren't. But otherwise, we can have our preferences on those things, and there's a number of things that are preferential when we read through the Bible that we don't have to bicker about. So if they're doing work and there's fruit in the work and then they're not against us, then they're actually for Jesus. Okay, this is tough because all I want to do intellectually is think of examples of ministries that I don't agree with outside in the world. And God says he'll deal with those ministries. They won't mock his name for long. They'll wither up and dry up. And after enough years, you actually see that that happens. A lot of these false teachers that, get, that rise up in popularity, they fall down five years later because of some indiscretion or sin in their life. And they come and they go. But the church of God just persists. And the work of God just stays solid and it keeps going. So don't forbid them. They're not against us, then they're for us. A general principle is focus on the kid. By the way, the kid is still standing with Jesus either standing, sitting, or holding hands with Jesus. This is the same conversation. And they're like, blah, 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 blah. And he's just with the kid. And he's like, you know what? Just If they're not against us, we're going to just take care of this kid and receive the kid. The disciples instantly want to think of things outside it. And he says they're on our side. Honestly, 
this makes teams. When you say is on our side, you're talking about a good side and a bad side, our side and their side. So even though they're not with us, they're still on our team. This is where we get the language Team Jesus. You're either on Team Jesus or you're not on Team Jesus. And it doesn't matter where you go to church or what ministry you're part of or where God has led you in that. There is the flesh, the world, and the demons, and then there's Team Jesus. And we want to make sure as many people as possible are on Team Jesus. They're on our side. And whether or not they come to this church or some other church just doesn't matter. If they want to fellowship here and be family here, it's because we're good at receiving people. If they want to be at a, a false ministry, they're going to eventually find that it doesn't work. And they're going to want something a little more meaty with what they do. So whose side are we on? Here's a, uh, just a thought on this. If we're wrong about something biblically, as I, don't, I hope that what we're learning is straight from the Bible. And we're learning these concepts Jesus is teaching. But what if we're wrong? Right? So if, we're, if we are about the business of shutting down other ministries, what if one of those ministries has it righter than we do? And we just became enemies of God by trying to shut down a ministry or going after or critiquing some ministry. I just, I think there's a humility here that Jesus is teaching too, which is who are you to judge if that ministry's on fire for Christ or not? Do you know their hearts? Because God does. Who are you to determine if what that person's doing and how they're living out their faith is of God or not? Do you, have you orchestrated the universe like at the end of the book of Job? Have you set the plumb line of the heavens to the earth? Have you made separated the earth from the oceans? Do you know the complexities of God's kingdom well enough to try to critique some other ministry that God might be working through? And if they're casting out demons, they're, clearly they're working. God's working through them. So we do obedience. God does outcomes. Just a general thing on this second, this second idea of other ministries besides us. We simply follow in the path that God's called us to follow. We let, other, we let God deal with the outcomes of that ministry. And we're humble enough to think that God might be working in ways we don't understand or we don't approve of. Maybe smoke machines are okay, right? Maybe God does want different kinds of clothing to be worn. I don't know. Who am I to critique the Amish for what they wear, Right? If what they're doing is following Jesus with their whole heart, mind, and soul, and that's what God's told them to do, then they're on our team. Team Jesus has some people that dress weird. Team Jesus has some people that are a little crazy and a little weird and a little off sometimes. And I'm not the one to necessarily judge that. All I'm here to do is bring people in and receive them as faithfully as I can do that. And boy, if you got a body of people on fire for doing that, what an awesome thing to coach, disciple, and love people with their hearts. Verse 51, Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. This is an odd set of verses right here. It's kind of a turning point. We've dealt with people inside the ministry disputing. We've dealt with them disputing with people outside their ministry. And then we get this passage where Jesus is setting his face on something. This is a hinge of Luke's gospel where Jesus is turning towards the cross. He's turning towards Jerusalem and everything's heading to Jerusalem. Mountaintop of glory to the cross. He sets his face. The word there is resolved to not be distracted or to be focused. And it also matches with Isaiah 50. For the Lord will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced. 
Therefore, I have set my face like flint. I know I will not be ashamed. And that's a messianic passage in Isaiah. So he's fulfilling a prophecy when he sets his face like flint. He is stone cold headed to the cross. Satan couldn't take him away from it in the temptation. Peter couldn't convince him as a friend to go away from it. The transfiguration was probably a temptation to just walk off with Moses and Elijah. That didn't stop him. And now he's just on the path and he's headed there. So he sets himself against temptation, the world, the disciples, the scribes, the multitudes, the anticipation of torture. And he's like, I'm in. And he's made this decision. And then he sends messengers ahead of him. We've seen this pattern that before the king shows up in a town, there's messengers to announce the king. So when the king gets there, there's a crowd to talk to. So he's making his way towards Jerusalem, but he's preaching the whole way down using the same method. And then we get to this third group of people. What happens when people reject Jesus? What happens when we encounter people that don't want to hear it, don't want to hear the message of Jesus, don't want to hear about the cross? How do we handle that? Again, we all have preconceived ideas on how to do that, but here's, the, here's one of the examples Jesus gives with people that disagree with him. And they, as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him. Same reception word being used with the child. They did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, and I like James and John here, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? You want us to fry them? <sighs> All right, sons of thunder and fire, apparently. Samaritans historically are descendants of Jeroboam and Ahabs. They're descendants of the northern kingdom that mixed with Assyrian transplants. Now, the thing with Jeroboam, as we'll study tonight, is he took Judaism and he said, Judaism's too hard. You've got to travel too far to get to Jerusalem. I don't like that you can only have Levite priests because they don't say the things we want them to say. So he set up his own priesthood. He set up two new centers of worship and he put idols right in the middle of them. And, and they're glitzy gold little Egyptian calves. The Samaritans mixed Judaism with all of that false stuff. The Jews rightly said, this is a group of people that are heretics. They're false, they're off, they're not obeying the law of God, they're not doing any of it, yet Jesus still loves them. And he sends people into his town. Typically, Jews would take the long route around Samaria. The fact that he set his face like flint, we might say he's going as the bird flies to Jerusalem. Straight line. He's going right through Samaria. So one thing, how do we deal with people that are rejecting Jesus? First of all, we don't avoid them. We go straight into the mix of them. We're not trying to get away from them. We have nothing to hide. So even though they're, in, they're lost in a false worship, they have mixed up ideas about God, and that they don't receive him. I just think it's interesting that Luke uses the exact same word for reception. If greatness is reception of a child, inhospitable, inhospitable people is probably leastness, if that's a word. To be rude to people and not welcome them and not feed them and not host them, that's the, the opposite of receiving a child. So if you want to be great, receive kids. If, you want, if we're to ignore other ministries and focus on our own, what do we do when we get actual resistance? Other people's religious mixed up ideas make it so they don't even want Jesus to come to town. The only history of this idea 
I think. Um, well, let me say it this way. They clearly see Jesus as capable, empowering, but they don't want Jesus to be part of it. So we see examples of this when he put the demons into the pigs and the town said, get out of here, you just wrecked our pig herd. He hasn't done anything to the Samaritans yet. They just don't want to have him. And he says the reason they don't want him is because he was on that journey to Jerusalem. They don't want a Messiah that's weak. They don't want a Messiah that's heading towards a cross. They don't want a Messiah that's going to Jerusalem because that's not where they go to worship. Right? They don't, Jesus isn't what they want because Jesus isn't the religion that they want. So they reject him. We don't want to hear about anything other than what we already do. Like one hour at the state fair and you will run into one of these people. Right? They'll walk up to the table and they'll be like, here's what I believe and it's different than you. And they'll announce it like they know everything. And often, the, you know, it depends on how serious you are about dealing with them. I just kind of laugh and Tom saw me do this. Thank goodness I'm not putting my, the eternity of my salvation on your opinion. I'd rather found that on something else, right? And, but Jesus doesn't even do that. Even that is me acting in the flesh a little bit. What do we do when we actually get this res resistance? And when they say, Lord, do you want us to command fire? And they say, like Elijah did, in the Old Testament, we have examples of God protecting his servants with the wrath of God from heaven. Elijah with the altar of Baal, but also Elijah sitting on the hill and the troops are coming and they all get fried. One thought is when we see those instances, we think that God sends fire out of heaven out of wrath or anger. The problem with that thinking is his wrath or anger is always to protect his children. It's a protective wrath. When he destroyed the Egyptians by crashing the sea in on an entire army, that's a lot of killing that God did. But he did it to protect the Israelites. So God doesn't have something where he, in petty wrath or anger, attacks people or humans for no good reason. What he does is he protects his children or those that are good and pure and decent. And in doing that, he's happy to end the lives of folks that are evil and horrible and nasty. And so Jesus, in this case, is not ending the lives of the Samaritans, even though they reject Jesus. John and James rightfully think, because of the Old Testament, well, these are people that have rejected you. They should be burnt from heaven. And they saw the transfiguration. They know Jesus can do this. Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed this way because they rejected God's law entirely. They lived however they wanted to live and they had no regard for God's law. God used them as a warning to all of human history to say that he's capable of wrath. That can happen. Um, and in, even in that, you get that instance where Abraham's like, man, would you save the town if there were 100 good people? Sure, I would. For my children, I would save that town. What about if there's only 10 good people? Yeah, I'd still save the town. And, it, and he kind of kept whittling it down. And, and God, like, he will preserve entire nations because of a few good people. It's interesting. Verse 55, but he turned and he rebuked them. And he said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For, if the, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Here's the thing. Here on earth, we humans are perfectly good at making our own little hell. We're perfectly good at it. God doesn't need to intervene to create hell. We do it all by ourselves. And I'm not saying there's no such thing as hell. I'm not Rob Bell. There is a place of eternal damnation. But in this earthly life, we're really good at making things miserable all by ourselves. And then we tend to blame God for it. 
God, why is this so bad? Why did you allow this thing? For the same reason he gave you free will, he gave that other evil person free will. They're making choices that hurt you. And that's part of what God will step in at the end of days to protect his children, just like he always has. But he thinks his children have a thick enough skin to handle it and still pursue him. James and John can't believe the dishonor that they're showing Jesus, the disrespect the Samaritans give to this glorified Messiah, and he rebukes them for trying to defend him. Again, take away preconceptions here. When we think we have to, in anger, get frustrated with people that reject Jesus, that our job is to hate them and be upset with them, we're dangerously close to being rebuked for the exact same reason James and John were. Let me take the worst examples, like the modern pop music industry making demon videos and nastiness, the modern governmental systems that are acting out in tyranny. Like we as Christians are so tempted to want fire and brimstone on their heads and we should know that God, Jesus' example and his response to that attitude, that spirit is what he calls it, verse 55, is to rebuke them, knock it off. Your job is to take care of kids, to take the least of these and bring them in, to welcome the people that humbly seek the Lord. That's your job. If you do your job, God will do his job. He promises he will judge the nations. He will judge the individuals. Everyone will be held account. And I want to point this out. Jesus doesn't rebuke James and John out of anger here. He rebukes them because he loves them and wants to correct them. We know he loves them because he just showed them the transfiguration. He just brought them to the mountaintop. And so this rebuke here that he's giving is intended to help them. And the sting of being rebuked by your Lord is something that should correct your behavior. Number two, Jesus doesn't need us to defend his honor. That's misguided thinking. Jesus is a lion, and the manner of spirit here is to think that we little humans can defend the honor of God Almighty. We don't need to do that, right? And it, it, it was sad for me when I saw at the state fair this, this tendency to want to bring in like a mix of secular and sacred in order to lure people in. Is that because you think Jesus is weak or that the sacred doesn't draw people in? What's your attitude about the church if you think you need secular elements to bring people into God's holy presence? Shouldn't God's holy presence be worth it on its own? So it's interesting that the rebuke they get is because they're, they're suggesting the action that would defend the honor of Jesus because they think humans need to build up Jesus. We just need to bring people close to Jesus. We just need to welcome people and receive people. So Honestly, this chapter is just a, a really interesting chapter when you look at almost every little denomination that Christians have broken themselves up into. A lot of those differences come around one of these three groups of people and how we deal with them. So first, the rebuke of Jesus here is loving. Second, he doesn't need them to defend his honor. And third, it's not okay to hate or wish fire and brimstone on other people. It should go without saying. That spirit is not one that we want to have. And then verse 56, For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. We're not here to wreck other people. Christianity uniquely is not a religion that attacks other people. And this is part of why. We love people instead of attacking them. This is why some of the Crusades were extremely misled. 
This is why the Spanish Inquisition is a dark scar on church history. When the church starts to attack or force people to believe in God, it becomes as evil as the world we're trying to change. And then Christians for 2,000 years have to try to defend the Spanish Inquisition. Well, I'm not going to. That, those people, I'm going to ignore them because if they say they're with Jesus, they'll either have fruit or they won't. And frankly, the Spanish Inquisition ended. So I don't know. I'm not going to judge. I wasn't there during that period of history. I have no idea what it was like to have the Muslims invading my country. Right? So I'm going to let that one be, but I'm going to do what God told me to do. And throughout 2,000 years, the church has refreshed itself over and over and over again by coming back to these words of Jesus. Let's just be loving. When the Catholic Church gets to be a high, um, everybody dresses up in fancy suits and the cathedrals get garnished with gold and statues and everything, you have the Benedictine monks that just say, nope, linen cloth and a rope, that's all we need. You got the Jesuits that say, I'm just going to study the word. So for, throughout history, the church is just, and then you get the Protestants and you get all these groups just saying, we're going to go back to what the word of God says. We're going to stop doing all the trappings of humanity. And the church continues to renew itself all the way to today in this room with us sitting here studying God's word. I just love this. The son of man didn't come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. God doesn't send people to hell. He saves people unto heaven. Again, the world always gets this wrong. One of those weird false questions is, why does God send people to hell? Brothers and sisters, we're all on our way to hell. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We don't deserve the transfiguration, not one of us. We're all selfish by nature. We've all fallen short. We've all hurt people and done wrong to people. Our selfishness has a momentum and a direction that's well on its way to hell. God snags us away from that. Think of it like this. We're all in a, a spider's web dangling over a fiery pit our entire life, and the only thing that saves us is the hand of God, taking the burning for us and protecting us from it. God doesn't send people to hell. God saves people unto heaven. And they went on to, and I like this, and they went on to another village. This would be a massive inconvenience. If you've walked all day and you're looking to get some shelter and some food and you know, sit in the tavern and listen to the fiddle, you know, and relax a little bit, call it a day. And they, the people that he sends before him come back and they're like, they rejected us. They don't want us to even come through their town. <sighs> I guess we're walking past sundown. So it's inconvenient. It's extra work. But it's worth it to not push themselves on people that don't want Jesus around. If they don't want Jesus around, that's kind of the, on them. And our reaction to those people shouldn't be to burn them. It should be to feel sorry for them and maybe send them a gift, you know, a little Jesus gift package. Sorry we couldn't hang this time, maybe next time. You know, Jesus teaches this idea in Matthew's record too, Matthew 7, 6. Don't give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and t turn and tear you to pieces. Don't antagonize people that don't want to hear about Jesus. All they're going to do is hate you. Instead, kindness is like putting hot coals on their head, right? All you do is respond with kindness because we don't respond based on how people act. We respond based on how God tells us. That means not getting angry, not forcing, just rolling on. They went on to another village. I love the passage about Isaac where the Philistines keep stealing his wells. It's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. They steal his well, that's unjust, that's horrible, that's wrong, and he just moves on and digs another well. 
And he does it multiple times. What chapter is that? Chapter 26 in Genesis. Awesome chapter. I love my wife. The conflict in spiritual matters is never productive. Let's just read the Bible and see that. Jesus doesn't force himself on a city that rejects him. He does meet a Samaritan woman at the well, and he sends her back to her Samaritan city to tell people all about Jesus. So God will get to that city. He's got another path. And to push against the goads. God's saying to Paul, why do you push against the goads? You know, it's like a, a, a draft animal that that's, the goads are little like spikes that get them to go straight down a plow line. Why do you keep pushing against the goads? All you're doing is hurting yourself. The walk of Christ is easier than that. So when you have people that simply reject the message of Christ to simply go on to another village is modeled by Jesus Christ. And so much easier for us to keep our joy and our hope and our love than to always be in the conflict. They do make contact and they do connect with people. They go into the town, but the town says no and they move on. So we don't avoid unbelievers. We go right at them. And we also show them the respect and dignity of their own free will, even if they're destroying themselves with it. Jesus is coming. He's coming. They said it. They had, in order for him, them to reject the messengers, they had to have said, Jesus is coming. Boldly proclaim it without fear. But when you see that resistance or that pushback, okay, when you're ready to talk Jesus, let me know. I'm going to move on to this other person. Honestly, I can't wait for the discussion because some of you might be like, Sean, you're totally misreading that. And I want to have that discussion. I think this is worthy for us to know how to walk. He says, you do not know. Really, they don't know themselves. They don't know the spirit that's in them when they do that, but it's their spirit, so they embrace it. Right? They can't recognize the difference between the flesh and the holy and what manner of spirit it is. We can follow Jesus, but still have our own will. We can still have the world. We can still have actual evil. So ours should be a spirit of love, compassion, and care. And if we have to stay in that boat, Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit, just so you know what the Holy Spirit feels like, it's love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. That's what it feels like when the Holy Spirit is operating. But when you're like, let's fry the city, man, that's not the Holy Spirit. And we're told that. And we should understand it. Verse 56, for the Son of Man. They're missing God's plan, right? So his answer is, the Son of Man did not come to destroy. So they don't understand themselves and they don't understand their Jesus. And those are the two mistakes that they make here that gets them a rebuke. And the goal to save people. Our disposition is not to fight, it's to save. We announce Jesus. God leads us to certain places. To those that welcome us, that's really fun. To those that are already Christians and doing their own thing, awesome. To those that reject us, that's kind of hard to take sometimes. So God doesn't do this with everybody. If people reject Christianity, that's not a threat to our belief system. I think that's good to know. The world's already lost. We're just trying to save the ones that want to be saved. If people accept Christianity, we have a bigger family, but it doesn't make us better people. We're not greater because we brought more people into the kingdom. We're greater if we take a child in and disciple them and help them to become a servant of God. Glory to God, more people get saved. So you got acceptors like the children. They receive, we show them hospitality, we minister, we love, we receive them. You got other Christians, we ignore them. God deals with their ministry in his way. And we got rejectors. And the answer to that is we walk away. 
I like this. This is a really light burden. Like this is an easy way to live life. This is a non-confrontational approach that Jesus shows his disciples at this time in the ministry. And again, let's point this out. 11 of the 12 disciples get martyred or killed. It's not that we don't have get in those situations where we get there. The situation will come to us, but we don't go for it. We don't actively pursue things like that. But we have a resolve. We set our face like flint. We move forward towards the cross with resolution and with absolute conviction. And we do that in such a way that we cannot be stopped by anything but death on this earth. And even that doesn't really stop us because then the martyrdom goes out. Jesus himself teaches a basic, clear, unavoidable set of how to deal with other people here. The thing is, Christians often just ignore this chapter. They don't want to hear it. They want to do it their own way. His focus is set on the cross, sacrificing his life for our life. Think of what that focus actually means. He's not cared about the crowds because he's here to save. He doesn't care about the rejectors because he's here to save. And the only path to salvation is to die for our sins on a cross. So that's what he's setting his faith on. If I'm to be like Jesus, the only thing that matters to me is to give my life for Jesus Christ so that other people can see Jesus. That's all that matters. So do we as believers ever mess this up? Heck yes, we do all the time. Sin moves and shifts our focus off the, the sacrificial nature of Christianity. We focus on fear, we focus on the world, we focus on others, or we focus on pushing other people to do it our way. All of those things are missing the point. Acceptors, I, I would say here's how we mess this up. I'm going to go through each of the three categories. Acceptors we often take for granted, right? You got people, look around the room. These are other acceptors in your ministry, and we take them for granted. We don't check in with them. We focus on ourselves. And it's a temptation in every church in America to walk into church hear the word of God and go home and never minister or take anybody under your wing. You're always hanging out with the same one or two people every week, but you're not reaching out. You're not connecting. That's not sacrificial living. It's not giving up your convenience to serve and care for others. If you only worry about your own affairs, you care for yourself, you tend to yourself, you forget to host, help, and receive people. And that's what Jesus told us to do. So we lose focus on Jesus's command to love one another and it, which would make us great in the kingdom of God, and we simply miss the mark. And we don't show anything special to the world when we're all selfish people hanging out studying the Bible together. No visitor sees that and goes, wow, I want some more of that in my life. Because, you know, then you get other people. Here's how we screw up the others. We see other Christians arguing with each other over irrelevant doctrines, over the Bible, over versions of the Bible. Oh my goodness, at this state fair, do you guys have King James Version? No, we have New King James Version. Nope, all of these are heretic Bibles. And they walk, it's like, all right, whatever. We get lost in that stuff. Eschatology differences, Calvinism versus Armenianism, Gnosticism, denominational differences, gifts of the Spirit. We bicker over this stuff. Or worse, the church looks at other ministries and tries to mimic them. We either try to argue with them or we try to mimic them and we try to bring everybody together in one thing, ecumenicalism. Instead of... In doing that, we lose our focus on the Word of God and what the Spirit is calling us to do as a body and as towards imitating Christ. How do we miss the mark? We worry about what other people think. And there's nothing special to show the world because we're just, we're, we, instead of just being a program, we're now pretenders. We're trying to do something or be something for others. 
And then with the rejectors, we often see Christians arguing with the world. I've kind of talked about this. We argue over beliefs, but not the heart. Issues that the world makes a headline of, we get into baiting, debating, and debasing, and intellectual pride squabbles. Or worse, we attack others with the command of fire to burn them up with our apologetics, to fry their belief systems. In doing that, we lose focus on the spirit of love, which will actually change their hearts away from bickering with us. We miss it. And we miss the mark because we're seeking to destroy, we're not seeking to save. And in that, we don't actually welcome anybody. So there are interactions with all three groups. They're not hibernating, but they're not, and they're not hiding. God calls us to all nations and gives us a direction on how to do that in this passage. The full counsel of God, we are supposed to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our job, our command from Jesus is to go out into this world. This chapter is how to go out into this world. And very specific instructions. We are receiving acceptors, ignoring other people, and walking away from people that reject us. Like, honestly, this is just an attitude or a disposition that is something we have to get straight as a church, not just us, the whole church. You're like, oh, see, you're critiquing others already. This is biblical. This is what I'm going to hang my hat on. And so when we get into these sorts of things, my prayer and my hope is that people can read their word, read the Bible and get into it. We don't strive to be in charge. That's following ourselves. We don't try to follow, stop, or be better than other ministries. That's following others. We don't fight with the lost or force ourselves upon them. That's following after evil. What we do is we follow Jesus. And again, like, it's a good reminder, right? We know this. We heard this in Sunday school songs. I have decided to follow Jesus, right? That's our comparison and our measure and our goal and our salvation. So these teachings help the disciples to figure this out. Luke isn't able to verify who, only what was said here. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road, verse 57, that someone said to him. So in other words, Luke couldn't quite figure out who said it, but multiple disciples remembered this instance. Somebody said this to Jesus. Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. Okay, Again, this is the summative thing, is don't put your focus on all the other things. Follow Jesus. And then this next passage goes right into following Jesus. How do we follow Jesus? I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This is a confounding verse for people. Why is he pushing someone away that says they want to follow Jesus? They just said the prayer of salvation, right? And he's pushing them away. Or is he? In context, they're walking away from a town, they're tired, they're hungry, they just got rejected where they were going to lay down to go to sleep, because verse 57 says, now it happened. This is as they're walking away from the Samaritan city, and Jesus is pointing out, like, I mean, for Jesus, it had to be like, dang, we're just going to walk away, we're not going to fry the town, we're going to walk away, but I'm tired, and I wish I had a place to sleep tonight. But following Jesus sometimes means discomfort, and that's the thing. So in verse 22, he says he's going to suffer. In verse 23, they have to deny themselves and follow Jesus. In verse 35, God speaks glory and says, hear him. And in verse 44, Jesus repeats that he's going to be betrayed. Now hear that. Following Jesus sometimes has trials. It's not always easy. You're going to have great spiritual successes, and the very next week you're going to have a devastating thing happen in your life because the enemy will push back. 
You know, one week you'll be helping out a lady on the street. The next week you'll have an argument with your parents. That's how it works. That's the, that's the spiritual battle. The life of Jesus offers amazing blessings and a path to follow. Jesus isn't thirsty for more followers. He's thirsty for disciples. And just getting people to say, I'll follow Jesus. Well, that's great, but then they come back. I was just listening to a, a interview with somebody who had repented from kind of being one of these big mass woke pastors. And he said one of the things that got him is they would invite people to the altar every week. They would say a prayer of salvation. And then as an assistant pastor, he was one of the people helping with that. And then the next Sunday would come around, they would do another invitation. It was all the same people that came up to get saved. And it started to make him question. And he'd say, why are you coming up again? You came up last week. And they're like, well, I don't feel like it's stuck. I went back home and I got right back into sin. So maybe I didn't pray it right. And there's just this mixed up attitude. And for him, it just had to be like, what, what, are we just trying to get people to say a prayer? Are we actually trying to disciple them and bring them into a new way of life? And so he repented. And I think this is great. He stopped doing the kind of teaching he was doing. And he told his whole staff as a head pastor, he goes, we're going to just teach through the book of John. And like I, he's doing expositional teaching and joining a movement of people that are just going to teach the word. And his whole church changed. And he lost a lot of people who wanted that other kind of church. So they're trying to find a place to sleep. This guy goes, I'm with you, Jesus. And he's coming. Maybe one of the Samaritans was like, they had one person that wanted to come out and see Jesus or something. And Jesus, Jesus basically, he says, I'll follow you. And Jesus doesn't, I want to point this out. He doesn't send the person away. He just gives them a realistic picture. He doesn't dress up Christianity as sunshine, unicorns, and butterflies. He paints a very realistic picture about Christianity. You're entering into a spiritual battle that goes back a millennia or three or four or five. And you as a wee human being are going to fight a spiritual battle that's so far beyond you, you won't even understand it until you get to heaven. But he's asking you to come in and join and be part of it and be part of that army. And to follow Jesus might mean that Samaritans don't want you around anymore. Following Jesus might mean that you have to set your focus on the cross and not on yourself. Following Jesus might mean that, well, you're worse off than foxes who have a place to sleep at night or birds of the air that they have their nests to sleep in. There might be things when you're in the missionary field where you're, you don't have a place to sleep tonight. You don't know where to go. So this is, again, there's a balance to all this, right? Um, there are huge blessings that are spiritual and he can provide. Um, on the other token, sometimes there's going to be trials and struggles. So he makes the overly enthusiastic person, he brings them back and says, do you know the sacrifice? Do you know the cost? And do you know what direction we're headed right now? And I think this is really good. If you get over-enthusiastic people like, I want to follow Jesus. I want to do it. I'm dedicated. I'm in. Do you know what you're in for? Do you know what faithfulness is? Do you know what self-sacrifice looks like? Like, what do you, what do you, do, what are you signing up for? And this is why, like, at least when we baptize, I try to at least have one conversation with somebody going, what do you think baptism means? What are you doing when you get baptized? What does that indicate? Jesus says in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. You see the lesson, how that goes with what we're learning in Luke? He's got his face on the cross. He's, he's telling his disciples to not fight, not bring fire down from heaven, because this isn't what it's all about. So we get kicked out of Samaria, but we love Samaria. That's tough. So many evangelists 
only paint the happy picture, begging, pleading, hard-selling and arm-twisting people to say a prayer. That's not how Jesus did it. And again, whatever your preconceptions, put them to the side for a second. How did Jesus actually do it? Here's somebody ready to follow him. And he's like, do you know we don't have a place to sleep tonight? That's what it means to follow me today? When we have Christians that try to squeeze people into the kingdom with everything they have, all they're doing is pushing their own will. And if that person is easily persuaded to come into the kingdom, they're going to be easily persuaded to leave the kingdom. I want people that are resolute because the Holy Spirit's moved in their heart to move in a direction. And it really doesn't matter what I do or say, they're coming into the kingdom of heaven. They're grabbing salvation because they want to get away from the direction they're going. And nothing's going to stop them from doing that, whether they're with our fellowship or they're with another fellowship. They're coming in seeking the word of God because they need it. Jesus wants us to join the kingdom of God, but we see in this example, Jesus' life maybe isn't that appealing for people that think of the flesh too much. For the selfish, Jesus is a turnoff. He's a stumbling block. What do you mean I got to go with a little less maybe to follow my Lord? Jesus is so precious, though, he doesn't need the hard sail. He's so good and so holy and so just and so pure. He's our Father in heaven. Perfect, blessed, wonderful. The product speaks for itself. We don't need to give it a discount. We don't need to have a three-day sale on Jesus. Jesus is Jesus. He's worth every penny. In fact, what I think Jesus does here is he raises the price. You want to follow me? It costs more than you think it does. Do you, do you have the willingness to pay what needs to be paid? The Holy Spirit calls. We respond. Jesus invites. It's the simplest evangelism ever. Follow Jesus. That's all we need to tell people. Humble enough to be looking for it like a child? Follow Jesus. People already following Jesus before we met them? Great. Keep following Jesus. People that reject the gospel and they're still following themselves, I'm going to move on because I'm going to follow Jesus. That's how we deal with those three groups of people. And we just see it in this chapter so well taught. Jesus knew how to read hearts. He receives the humble. He warns the posers. He ignores the hostile. And, I, and, and for me, this is just like you read this and you're like, that's the way, the truth, and the life. I can do that. I'm capable of that. I can receive the humble. I can, I can ignore people that are doing it wrong. And I can ignore hostile people. So if, if you feel that pull, something drawing you to Jesus, the word of God, a life unburdened with sin, nothing's going to stop you from getting to Jesus, including my poor evangelism. Believe and be baptized. Rock on. That's the game plan. If you aren't sure or you need more evidence or you don't want to give up the sin in your life, work that out. Realistically, there's a cost. Be willing to pay any price to get something that's as precious as, as eternal life with Jesus Christ. If you want to walk and hang out with Moses and Elijah and Jesus and talk about the history of the world in glory, in the, in the light of Jesus that he emanates, oh, I'm not going to get in the way of that. I can't get in the way of that because it's free for you to pick it. Verse 59, then he said to another, like, again, there's just all these different examples. Then he said to another, follow me. Notice in this case, the first person was overly enthusiastic, right? And he comes up to Jesus saying, I want to follow. In this one, Jesus 
invites somebody to follow him. Great evangelistic message. Follow me. Follow Jesus. But he said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Boom. So this message gets harder, right? You get down this rabbit hole of what it means, the cost of discipleship. Same idea here, though. Jesus shows an invitation. Verse 57, the person volunteers. Here Jesus invites. And his instruction, the direct calling from Jesus is to preach, go and preach the kingdom of God. This is what he's told his disciples too. In other words, this person that he's asking, he's inviting him to do the same work as the 12 disciples. Which makes you wonder, maybe the number 12 is because certain people just wouldn't do it. And there was only 12 that accepted the call. Like, I don't know. Lord, let me first go and bury my father. The idea here is a split between what is good and what is God. Right? To care for your father is noble. It's good. It's honorable in all ways. you got a family member that dies and there's a funeral that needs to happen. Like everything in the flesh and everything on earth says, we'll take care of that. That, that comes first. And Jesus, part of the cost, part of not having a place to lay your head is maybe that doesn't come first anymore. And this is such a tough idea to, like, this is like, you got to work this one out. When Jesus, when the guy, when Jesus calls, this guy says, I got one thing I got to do before I can serve Jesus. And for Jesus, that's just not enough. The correct answer to this, by the way, is yes and amen, right? I can skip a funeral. Right? But often what takes us off the path of being faithful in our ministry and faithful in the things of God are competing claims which seem to be good too. And this is where people get angry at the pastor. Don't shoot the pastor on this one. Shoot, like, honestly, I'm just the messenger. Right? I'm not saying skip all funerals from here forward. But when that funeral gets introduced at a time when you've already made a commitment to the king, you got to work that one out. And again, like Jesus has taught them to deal with others, if you say you're following Jesus and you've made a decision to do this versus that, that's on you. That's between you and God. Jesus shows how to make determinations that we separate the earthly concerns from the heavenly ones. If you want to follow Jesus at this point, he's walking to Jerusalem. He's on a path. And if you got to go back and take care of a funeral, he's not going to stop for you. You're not that important. He loves you. He wants you. But he's not going to stop his work because you don't have time for him, right? Because other things take precedent. So Jesus wants, this person wants to follow Jesus, but he wants to do it later at a better time or a more convenient time because he has a good thing competing with a God thing. It's good to bury your father. It's good to go to the funeral. It's not good to do that when you're abdicating or missing out on the ministry opportunity Jesus gave you. Verse 57, the guy's too quick to follow Jesus. Verse 59, this person's too slow to follow Jesus. So Jesus, again, shows us things on either side of the road. Too short, too long. When Jesus calls, we follow. Even good obligations like family take second place to God's work. And again, like we all differ on this. Like, okay, what does that mean and how do we work that out? As believers, we have those conversations. That's how iron sharpens iron. Well, what should I do? Should I go to this or should I go to that? You know, Luke, Jesus and Luke, I, I, I kind of like that I'm going to be gone next week because like clearly the obligation and the calling of teaching the word, something's come up for Steph and I where we feel like God's calling us to go do this for one week. So we all make these decisions, but think about them. Jesus and Luke doesn't ask followers to do anything that they haven't seen him do. 
Remember the story of a couple chapters ago where his mom and his brothers come up and try to take him away from the ministry? And he turns and he says, my, these are my brothers and these are my sisters because he was teaching the Bible. It was Sabbath. And his biological family didn't take precedence over his Sabbath family. And he modeled that for them individually and now he's instructing them to do the same. And we see in the book of Luke, Luke has set up every one of these things in the early chapters that Jesus did everything he's asking his followers to do, including going to a cross. He's going to do that first. And he's going to lead the way. This is similar to, um, by the way, that was uh, 819 where the family came up. So burying his father is something the world says is a must to. You have to be there. And Jesus simply challenges that idea. Do you have to be there? Does the dead person know if you're at their funeral or not? Do they care? You can't preach to dead people, but you can preach to living people. And preaching is what Jesus was going to do. And this doesn't mean that the church doesn't do funerals. We just try to do funerals at a time that do not interrupt the work of Christ and the work of God that we've committed to. This can mean that missionaries, instead of flying home, send a letter of condolence because they're in the mission field. They're not going to come back for something that's good, but it's not necessarily what God's called them to do. It might mean that we miss some things that our family says we have to be at because it's at a time that we've consecrated. But you have to believe in the idea of consecration to even get to there. So then we get a third version of this situation. You got overly enthusiastic, you got underly enthusiastic, and then you get verse 61 to make this even harder. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid farewell to those who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Ouch. This isn't even a funeral. This is just go back and say goodbye. He's not saying I need to stay for a day or two because funerals could be like, a, they would sit Shiva for seven days. Like that's like a week delay. This is just, let me go back and say farewell. I got to just, this is like a momentary delay. And Jesus gets more extreme with his answer here. First, it's like, um, the first one is in verse 60, you go preach the kingdom of God. The second one is you're not even worthy for the kingdom of God. You're not fit for it. That's a really tough lesson to hear. To first go and bid them farewell is this perceived obligation to be polite. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Being polite is good. Letting people know where you're going to be at, that's a good thing to do. Um, and the people who are at my house, this, mean, this means not only family, but anyone that they were hosting at the time. Imagine having people come over to your house and you just take off, right? And so this is a really hard example. Family, guests, but then you got Jesus on the other end calling him to come this direction. Follow me. And this one says, Lord, I will follow you, but I have to take care of my own business before your business. And Jesus is like, you're just not fit for the kingdom if that's how you think. You don't know what spirit is in you. You're still thinking of yourself and the flesh instead of putting God's kingdom first. So Jesus doesn't push with the Samaritans, but with, the, with people that are trying to follow him, he really pushes, right? He, never, he didn't have any of these conversations with the rejectors, the Samaritans. He has these conversations with people that are promising to follow him. Okay, if you want to follow Jesus, know the price, know the commitment, know that everything else gets second place to Jesus. This is an extreme way to make a very hard point in three different ways. Jesus is first. First lesson is we receive people if we want to follow Jesus. Second lesson is if you want to follow Jesus, other things got to go. And other things take second place. 
So Jesus sets his face on Jerusalem. I think the point here from Luke is we're supposed to set our face on Jesus. He's leading and we follow. And we see that phrase follow three times with each of these stories. And here it's about putting the hand to the plow. <laughs> Here's the thing with plowing with a hand plow. I had to look this up because I've never actually done it. Today we have tractors with GPS systems. They gave us very straight lines. But GPS systems are set up from a global positioning system that points a tractor in the right direction. Prior to global positioning, we had setting your eyes on a fixed point in the distance and then holding on for dear life as that ground struggles against and tries to get you off your line. Every stone you hit, every hard patch of soil you hit, that plow's got to dig through it. And then I thought, oh, this is a great follow-up parable or image to the parable of the seeds. We're plowing soil. That's part of what we're doing, to get soil ready for the Word of God. And when we do it, we can't look at the ground. And what he says is you don't look behind you. If you look behind you when you're trying to drive, you often turn off your path, right? So I say this to my wife all the time. Honey, keep your eyes on the road. You don't need to look at me when we're talking because you're terrifying me. Just keep your eye on the road and go straight in a straight line in that direction. But in this sense, it's like, boy, when you've started, when you've put your hand to the plow, when you've started working for the kingdom, you've been baptized, you've taken on a ministry to be faithful in that thing, you have to keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't keep your eye on the ministry. Keep your eye on Jesus. So, and then hold on tight because it's going to be quite a ride. And you're going to hit stuff. You're going to hit Samaritans. You're going to hit other ministries that bother you. You're going to hit people in the church that you got a disciple, like little booger kids. But if you want to make a straight line and you want it to go straight towards Jesus, you have to hold on tight. You have to keep your eyes on Jesus. I love this image. And looking back, like the, other, the looking back example in the Old Testament was Lot's wife. They're leaving sin and they're getting the heck away from it. And she has this part in her heart where she's looking back to that. Oh, I wish I could be back in that just a little bit of sin in my life. Okay, you want to do that. Your line's going to be crooked. Or worse, you become useless salt that's really only good for making your roads harder and more packed down. You're not helping anybody. Set your eyes, set your face like flint, point yourself to the cross. Plowmen are strong, dedicated, and they have a clear goal, breaking up hard soil. That's what they do. So tying us back to that seed parable, and we're trying to get the word of God, the seed, to land on good soil, the heart, and we're the plowmen. We just burl in. So you did a ministry with no fruit. Okay, do another ministry. You, did the, you tried to invest in this person's life and they ended up with rejecting Jesus. Don't get all upset. Invest in somebody else's life. Keep being a fisher of men. You put your fish in the water and nothing bites. Put some new bait on and put it back in the water. We're plowmen. And in that, we can be fit for the kingdom of God. God doesn't need you, but he wants you. And he has a plan for you. And that plan is to put your hands to the plow and get to work. Good soil. So you're either all in or you're all out. Honestly, this is one of those messages where I just love the idea of all in gospel. You're either in it or you're not. And if you're not, we still love you. We'll still receive you. We'll still be patient. But we're sad. We, there's so much more to grab onto. Get your eyes off yourself, your eyes off the world, your eyes off of sin. and Point your eyes to Jesus Christ and the cross. And start walking in that. God will bless you. He will show you. He will reinforce those decisions at every step. He'll meet you where you're at. And he'll help you grow from there. 
Just start doing what he's asked you to do. So what do I have to do versus how much do I get to do? Does that make sense? Coming to church, it's, it's not what do I, what must I do? It's how much can I still do and survive, right? How much of my life can I give to the Lord? So I don't know. I, we'll wrap up with this, just this thought. Family, I implore you, just as your brother, not greater than any of you, um, definitely not greater than those that take care of the kids. If there's anything pulling you away or distracting you from God's work, it's messing up your spiritual life. Get rid of it. Turn back to Jesus. Return to a singular, undivided goal of sharing the kingdom of God with everybody you meet. Commit to it. Be faithful in it. Next, when we come back, we'll get to the, we'll finally get to chapter 10. And uh, Jesus is going to start multiplying the kingdom again. He's going to add some disciples. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.